Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 45 of the North American Outdoors Podcast. My name is Heidi Rayo, and I'm coming to you from the great state of Texas. Today, I have with me in our podcasting studio my number two and only child, Matthew Rayo. I'm going to be interviewing him today, and he is going to tell us some of his favorite memories growing up hunting and being in the outdoors. So welcome, Matthew, to my studio. Hello. Thank you. Um, So start off by telling us as far back as you can remember. I mean, obviously, those of you who've been listening to me, you know that I am all about hunting and firearm safety, and my whole goal in life is to put firearms in people's hands safely and responsibly. So my kids have been submerged in this culture and been submerged in this growing up. So looking back... When you were little, little bitty, what is your earliest childhood memory about firearms? My earliest childhood memory about firearms would be we were at um, a family friend's ranch and they recently caught a ring-tailed cat up in northern Texas, northern west Texas. And I remember the first time, that was the first animal I've ever killed. And I remember um, it was in a cage trap and I got to shoot it with the twenty-two rifle. And so that's the earliest memory I have of me holding a gun, shooting, and I think I was the age of five or six at that time. So you mentioned that it was in a cage trap. So explain to our listeners why an animal would be in a cage. So a lot of times landowners set traps because they kill their livestock, like raccoons would kill chickens, they'd eat the food, they'd dig they tear up the ground. So they set hog traps and basically big cage that are baited to where if the animal goes in and steps on a trigger, it'll basically close the trap and lock them in until they are checked and then the landowner does what they want with them. So is that your first memory of ever handling a firearm? 
No. Um, as a kid, whenever my dad, before he retired as a game warden, um, every morning before school, he'd always have on his gun belt. And I remember he'd always explain the safety rules of it, um, never to touch it. And he also took like the curiosity away from it. He showed us how it worked so that he just took that question out of our mind of what is this so that because kids, whenever they're curious, are going to investigate. So he showed us what it was, what it did. I mean, how it worked, basically. And he also taught us not to touch that gun. And so we kept it in places where like not just laying on the table. I mean, even if he did leave it on the table, we knew better not to touch it. But he never left it unattended. He always had it locked and stored away properly to where only he and whoever he wanted to get it could get to it. So as you grew up, uh, you had your first hunt with the ringtail cat, and then you grew up and you participated in several youth hunts. You were able to sit in a blind with myself or with um, your dad as we guided other hunters, and ultimately, you were able to go on your very first hunt as a youth hunter. So do you remember what that felt like to actually be able to be on a hunt? Yes. Um, when I was younger, about six or seven, I got invited to go to this pretty wealthy property um, somewhere out in Texas. I can't remember where, but he had native wildlife uh, on his property and also exotic, meaning that they weren't born in the area. And so I shot my first white fallow deer at that property and all everyone there, they drug it up, they loaded it up. They skinned it. They gutted it for me. Next time I got it back, it was in a meat package. So that's how I thought hunting was until I got invited to just um, another property. And when I got there, I was expecting it to be similar to the ranch I was at previously. And so the next day we went hunting and I shot a doe. But this time I didn't have anybody doing the work for me. Next thing I know, I was in the mud dragging it out, loading it up onto the vehicle taking it and then I actually got to skin it for the first time and um, gut it so I quickly realized that that's what hunting is is you have to work for it it's not given to you really Um, it's very rare if it is and so I just basically worked for it I I gutted it myself and then we uh, took it to the processor and so I gotta look at what hunting really is about So did it make you appreciate all the work that goes into hunting when you were able to successfully take an animal and see it from the field pretty much to the table where you were able to process it yourself and field dress it and skin it and quarter it and ultimately provide dinner for your family? You were part of that whole process. Yeah, it did make me appreciate it more because there's a lot more that people don't see, like biologists coming out, scouting out the area, knowing how many you can take. Um, So just stuff like that, instead of it's not just what a lot of people think it is, where it's you shoot it and boom, you're done. No, it's, it's a lot more to it. So when you pull the trigger, that's actually the start of your work, not the end of it, right? It's the beginning of your hunt. So... You talk about being part of the whole process and, you know, meeting the landowners and meeting the biologists involved. So a lot of that goes with with the law and with ethics. So tell me what 
the word ethics means to you and what what makes you an ethical hunter? Ethical is kind of something that's like morally correct, whether it's like shooting ducks on water, because to me, that's not ethical. That's not really giving the duck a fair chance at the game you're playing with the animal. But um, like I said earlier, ethics is about you. It's personal. So it's not up to me to tell you what's ethical and what's not. That's up to yourself to step back and think, is this really what I want to do? So as you started hunting when you were so young and now you're 16 going on 17, do you think that your ethics as a hunter have changed, evolved, grown? I mean, are you doing things now, all legal, of course, because we're, we're legal people, but as you've grown as a hunter, do you feel like there are things that you do now that you didn't do when you were younger or vice versa? Meaning if, if that duck was on the water, for example, when you were younger and you had an opportunity to take that shot, and if it was a safe shot, maybe you would have taken it because you were younger. But now that you've improved on your skills, your shooting skills, maybe now you're going to wait until that bird flies. So do you have an, a story or an example of how, as a younger hunter, you may not have done something, but now that you're older your ethics have changed. Yeah. So, um, they've definitely changed because I used to really didn't think much about like shooting into a herd or something. Um, whenever I was younger, I just thought, Ooh, it's an animal. I'm going to shoot it. But now like whenever I hunt alone or something, it's, I have to think more about the legal side too. I don't want to shoot into a herd of does when I could Whenever the bullet could go straight through and hit the buck in the back that the landowner didn't want to shoot. So it's, um, yeah, they've changed. So you mentioned something I wanted to touch on today as well is you said about when you were hunting alone. So like I said in my last podcast with your big brother, um, as a parent, there's nothing more rewarding watching your kids grow up and be responsible, safe and ethical with firearms and while hunting to be able to to cross that rite of passage as a teenager, especially to be able to hunt by yourself. Um, and you were able to do that last year. You were able to go on your own and we allowed you to hunt um, by yourself because you've showed us, you've demonstrated that you can handle a firearm safely, that you do know how to identify game. Um, you know how to look up what season it is and the bag limits and the different rules and the counties that you're hunting in. And, and there's a lot of information that we as hunters need to know before we can go out into the field to not only be safe and ethical, but to be legal because game wardens are everywhere, aren't they? Yeah. They just materialize um, when you're out there hunting and you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing because, you know, that's just what we do as hunters. We, we want to be safe and responsible and, and ethical as well. So we were able to allow you to hunt on your own last year. You know, do you remember a little bit about that experience? You want to share that? Yes. So I remember I got to go on a turkey hunt and I was putting a ground blind around noon until the evening. And the landowner told me, because he's been scouting and watching the, the flock of turkeys, he said that about two o'clock they're going to come to that uh, around your blind and feed in that area. And sure enough, a couple minutes later after I got situated, 
About 2.03, I heard gobbling way off in the distance, and it got louder and louder, and next thing I knew, there was about 30 turkeys, both hens and gobblers, and um, so they were all feeding around the ground blind I was in, and I remember with the shotgun, um, I slowly pulled it out, I took a look at one of the gobblers, and I waited till um, it flattened out its feathers and stuck out its neck, and then I pulled the trigger. And then that was it. I mean, the flock took off, but that was the first turkey I shot, and that was the first hunt I was able to do alone. And as a mom, that was pretty awesome, watching you be so successful on your own and putting all of those skills that you learned over the years to the test in the field and being so safe and successful at the end of the day. Yeah, I even learned how to breast it, and we ate it. And now we have a full turkey body mount in our living room for me to relive that moment every time I look at it. So tell me about another time that you were able to hunt on your own. So there was this one time we were at a land or property and uh, I got to hunt in an elevated blind and it was really nice because I didn't shoot anything, but I got to watch because we were shooting spikes and only a couple of does came out. But it was nice watching them um, until the sun went down, listening to the actual quiet instead of you're away from the real world. So it's kind of nice to be disconnected like that for a little bit. So how does being alone in a blind or an elevated tree stand or wherever you're hunting, how does that make you a better hunter by being able to submerge yourself in nature and blending in, being so quiet? seeing the sights and listening to all the sounds around you? Um, I get more experience by it because instead of having a hunt master or guardian doing a lot of the detailed stuff like determining like determining whether um, a deer is legal or not with a 13-inch spread, you have to do that now on your own. You so have- explain to me, for those that don't live under those laws about the 13-inch rule, what does that mean? Basically, the deer's antlers have to be spread um, 13 inches, and an easy way to tell is if it's outside of his ears. So there are some Texas counties that require any deer, whitetail buck to be taken, have to follow the 13-inch law. And that basically means what Matthew said, their antlers have to be at least 13 inches wide to be legal in that particular county. So yeah, you learn... um, how to be quiet, move more slowly, um, and just listen for sounds, whether that's leaves crunching under you, listening to um, predators like coyotes howling. I mean, it's it's a cool experience, and you just learn a lot being alone. And so how does that make you a better hunter when you're watching nature? You just learn what to look out for. You're more patient. Um, you're more cautious with the things you do. And you also learn the animals out there, their behavior, how they act, how they interact with other animals. If um, a doe sees birds flying around them, I mean, you just see how they act with other animals, um, how they eat, their behavior, just cautious. You, you learn their signals and whether they're scared, they're cautious, they're relaxed. You just learn their body, their body um, signals. So do you have any stories that you'd like to tell, a memorable hunt that you went on or that you were a part of 
um, something that happened recently or even in the past? Do you have a, a really good, funny story that you'd like to share? Um, yeah, every year, uh, the crew that I'm a part of, BSA cr- Venture Crew 30-06, we go up to the Panhandle um, in Dumas and Cactus, Texas, up north, and um, we basically go waterfowl hunting. And so one time, um, I, uh, I, I was able to shoot a pintail and it landed almost like it landed close to the, um, shore of like a frozen lake. So I had to walk back about a mile to get a pole from the truck that we parked. Um, so I could, um, fish it out of the pond. And so whenever I got back, there were a whole bunch of falcons eating it. And so, I mean, I was able to flee them off with the pole. And by the time I got my pintail back, its breasts were completely gone. All the meat was taken out. It had no guts. I mean, it was just basically a lump of feathers. <laughs> and so, basically, um, I still counted that as part of my um, bag limit. But that was just one of the really memorable stories of the panhandle hunt. was Because, uh, I mean, that was good enough to be a mount, too. But, I mean, it just got destroyed. But those hawks, you know, thanked you greatly for giving them a free, easy mail, right? Yeah. How cold was it? I mean, it was in the negatives up in uh, those plains up in northern Texas. It gets really cold. The wind just sucks the moisture out of you. Um, It was snowing. So, I mean, it would have been miserable if I didn't have any, like, fun moments, but... Being with friends and the crew and stuff, it made it fun. And you got to experience hunting in the snow and cold and blustery tundra of North Texas. That's one thing here, you know, along the coast, uh, we don't normally experience four seasons. And so being able to go on different hunts and share different experiences, that's something that I've always tried to do is to expose, you know, my kids at least to different opportunities. And by traveling, you know, outside of where we live and getting those opportunities and going up into different parts of the the state and of the country to learn how to hunt in, in different weather and what equipment is needed and the different species that you can hunt. Because um, sometimes those animals obviously aren't located where we are or we're not located in their flight path. So it was really a neat experience to see the different types of waterfowl up in the Texas Panhandle. And it was really a neat experience to watch nature do what nature does and to watch the whole feeding the feeding frenzy occur on Matthew's Matthew's poor pintail. So obviously hunting is just a part-time deal because we don't have hunting season year-round in most of the places. So it's not just about going hunting when it's hunting season. It's something that we teach and practice year-long and how to become proficient with whatever firearm that you plan to be using. So one of the things that we've raised our boys in learning not only firearm safety, but learning about all different types of firearms from rifles to pistols to shotguns. And so, Matthew, do you want to talk about the different types of firearms that you like to shoot and some of the different opportunities that you've had? Yeah. So um, after hunting season, it's not just a stop for our crew. 30-06, we go um, practice at the range. And some of my favorite are the 22250 
rifle, the thirty out six, two forty three, because that's a little fun one to shoot, and the twenty twos. Those are still really fun. And basically, we just go to the range and we shoot. I help instruct a lot of times on the ranges, and at Boy Scouts, it's always fun because in all the shooting competitions, I'm always getting very high. Um, I got first place, and so um, that's just cool. And we also get to go um, see what the landowners do outside of hunting season, and that's land management, dealing with hogs, um, dealing with the management of their deer and their animals, basically, um, refurnishing their fences, stuff like that. So we get to see what the landowners do because it's not, they don't shut down after deer season. They keep going. They keep feeding. They have to refill their feeders. They have to care for their blinds, uh, roads, trails, all of that. And so, yeah, that's basically what we do. And you also mentioned that you help instruct on the ranges. So one of the things that my husband John and I do is we also teach the um, National Rifle Association uh, classes and we teach the basics, the rifle, the pistol, the shotgun, basic classes, which teach the terminology, fundamentals, you know, how to aim, how to breathe, how to do your trigger control, your follow through. And we also teach about the ammunition and we do range time with beginning shooters. And so Matthew, you want to tell us a little bit about what you do with the NRA classes? Yeah. So I help a lot of times in the classroom, but my main um, time I help is on the ranges, which I go out there and I help all the newer shooters um, understand the basic components while they're using them. I um, help correct them if they're doing something wrong, whether that's um, pulling the trigger instead of squeezing, um, jerking the gun, uh, basically stuff like that. So, I mean, I'm just overseeing the safety and um, tips to help them improve. And a lot of times when we have younger shooters, it's really nice to have um, a younger instructor or Matthew's an assistant instructor in the rifle, pistol and shotgun disciplines, and he helps us teach. But it's nice to have a different perspective when you are submerged in this, you know, your whole life, this is what you do. It's nice to have somebody else with a different perspective who, who may say things a little bit differently. So the student might understand it a little bit better. So it's always fun for me to watch Matthew help a new shooter. If, if I'm working with somebody and they're just not getting it and they're just not understanding, they're getting frustrated. I'll turn that person over to Matthew and just by the way he might say something just a little bit differently, um, it's going to put them on paper and make them be a more proficient shooter. So that's really fun to watch as well. And with the shooting part, you know, just because you go to the range for the day and you have all the fun that you can stand, um, shooting, the day's not over, is it? Nope. What's the next part? Now we got to clean. So basically, um, a lot of times after the range, I'll teach the class how to clean, whether what what uh, we're teaching in the class, whether it's rifle, shotgun, or pistol, I'll teach them how to clean those firearms. And so we take the firearms we use for the range home, and then everyone dumps it off on me, and I'm cleaning. So <laughs> basically, I just, um, whichever um, type of firearm it is, I'll clean it according to that. And so, yeah. How important is it to clean your firearm? Very, because you don't want any old debris in there. Um, if you do, that could mess up your shot. It could actually explode your barrel um, having junk in it. 
Um, so it's just good to keep it maintained um, because, I mean, I, it's it's safe, very safe to clean. And how often should you clean your firearm? Every time you touch it, basically. Every time you touch it. Because why? What are you touching? Your, your, your oil is just basically, it's getting on the gun and um, it's smudging it up. And then if you're using ammunition, the lead is getting in there. So you just want to clean all that out. Very good. Well, I appreciate your time today. Is there any ending comments that you would like to leave our listeners with talking about your experiences, your favorite hunting, anything like that you'd like to share? Yes. So just go off and um, be safe with firearms and um, have a good day. There is no better classroom than the outdoors, roaming the woods and waters and creating memories that will last a lifetime. This is Heidi Rayo, and you've heard another North American Outdoors podcast. For more information, visit NorthAmericanOutdoors.org and follow us on Instagram at North American Outdoors. Have a great day.